0: Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: My mother, when she's make a story, she was used to say, I'm going to make the story You listen. When we heard she saying that, we went... Come and we listening. Sanak Aliasarecto Aknak Sanak Alia Sarecto Imag Beusilbin Aulalanatunigu imaitunit Nacato Atunamilo namoda Chaminik Uluminilo Nakatiriu di Chamining Amalu
2: Welcome to Ideas I'm Nala Ayed and I'm in Nunavik the Inuit homeland that stretches from the Hudson Bay to the Ungava coast, north of the 55th parallel, in what is now northern Quebec.
1: And I'm listening to Hialik
2: Napalak read the opening of her mother's novel, Sanak. It's a groundbreaking novel, the first novel written in Inuktitut.
3: To me, you know, she's introduced us to the entire world with with all the beauty that she wrote in this book.
2: Mityarjak Napalak began writing Sanak in the 1950s when she was just 22 years old. It took her 20 years to write, and in that time, she bore witness to profound change.
3: She brings us through the the times when colonization comes on strong and fierce. And for Inuit, we were colonized later, faster.
2: The novel tells the story of a fiercely independent woman named Sanak as she and her community navigate their changing world.
4: I didn't realize it was massive change. I thought this was like Now looking back at it and reading about it also, I'm 71 to just now realizing what kind of really happened.
2: This is the second installment in Another Country, a four-part series exploring change and resilience in Nunavik. We're calling this episode Sanak. So this is the original Sanak. Yes. In Inuktitut.
1: That's in Inuktitut. Yep. Wow. Somebody had been typing. My mother, she was writing. By hand. By hand. Yeah. Can I? Can we take a look? Can I? Start?
2: Yeah. shows yeah, us the cover. Me. It's a photo of her mother as a young woman wearing an amauti, an Inuit parka with a special hood-like pouch to carry a baby. She's carrying a baby boy on her back.
1: That boy, he's the same age of me. I was student with him. So I asked my mother, how come you had this in your amauti instead of me? And she said, you were not born yet. Hmm. So... She's pregnant. I'm there. Oh wow! Hialak taps her mother's belly. That's why her hands hold holding that way.
2: As a child, Hialak often saw her mother writing sentences in Inuktitut syllabics for missionaries who wanted to learn the language.
1: I was used to following her when she going to. The missionaries, she was writing, writing, you when she's working, sometimes I go to her, I need to do something or I need something, or I just need to cry. I just went there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I was just a baby. I didn't know what she's doing. When she's done, we go home. And she started to tell about her writing. At
2: first, Midi wrote down common phrases and vocabulary. Then she started inventing characters.
1: She was dreaming like the family in the books. But the action, it's from Inuit culture.
2: Her mother had a deeper mission in mind, beyond just teaching the missionaries. It came to her after she returned from a tuberculosis hospital down south.
1: In nineteen fifty, nineteen sixty she's go down to hospital and she's come back. She feel we're gonna be lost. We're going to losing our language if we not do do something. So she was dirty to writing. So sunak
2: became an act of preservation.
1: Hialik starts
2: flipping through the table of contents, reading the names of the chapters.
1: And he didn't catch any fish, just returning back without catching.
2: Empty-handed.
1: Yeah. yeah. And Sanak, seizing Tupik in a tent. The novel unfolds in 48 vignettes,
2: all anchored to the rhythms of everyday life and of the changing seasons.
1: Before they leaving, they went to the shore, um, picking some muscles.
2: The writing is impressionistic and vivid. It's both cyclical and surprising. As the novel's French translator, Bernard Saladin-Danglure, put it, At 22 years of age, Mityarczyk reinvented the novel, even though she had never read one.
3: I think it's written very beautifully over the course of 20 years. It isn't structured the way a novel would normally be structured, but it's structured in the way that she would tell the story. I am Norma Dunning. I'm a professor with the University of Alberta, the Faculty of Education. I'm also a writer, and I have so far published five books, two collections of poetry, two collections of short stories, and a non-fiction book is my most recent. It is called Kineovit, What's Your Name? The beginnings, I would think the first probably one half of that book. She really brings to light Inuit traditional ways of operating in the world, whether it's through language or through hunting. The book opens, and she's going out to get grasses for
0: mats. A woman, Sanak, was getting ready to go and gather branches for mat-making. Before leaving... She assembled a tump line to carry the load, her ulu to cut the shrubs, and a glove to yank them out of the ground. She also filled a small bag with provisions, tea, meat, and blubber, as well as her pipe, matches, and chewing tobacco.
3: There was not as much contact with non-Inuit at that time. But for me, when the book opens, we see that she has matches, she has tobacco. And so obviously, the non-Inuit have already been there and have left an influence. But for me, with her, she is so fiercely independent. And that's what I loved about her.
1: The way I see it, that's my mother, because she's always talking of the history, knowledge. It's her life. Strong woman? Strong woman. Independent? Yes. hmm Loving?
2: Yes. When we meet the main character, Sanak, Inspired by Mithyarjak herself, she's alone,
0: out on the land. She kept walking further and further from home, followed by her two dogs, Hayualuk and Kilnik. On the way, she saw some Akigit and prepared to kill them with a few well-aimed stones. But the dogs ran after the birds. Sanak tried her best to stop the dogs, yelling at the top of her voice, How? How? Hayualuk How?
1: How? 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 So she was trying to make them stop. Oak, oak, kallalu, oak. But they're not listening. I learned from my mother when she's writing, she was using a lot, like, ik. Yes, a lot of sounds. Yeah, Absolutely. a lot of sound.
2: Yeah, the, the sound of the dogs. Ma, ma,
0: ma, whimpered the pups as they scampered away. It's the
2: sound of the, the gun when it, yeah, yeah. when it goes off.
0: Halingu aimed his gun.
1: Why do you think? I think she wants to make concentrate. that how she was making a story for us. Like, I was singing, As we talk, Hialak often sings
2: snatches of songs her mother created.
1: often sings snatches of songs her mother created. Like, she sound like a bird. Totally. I think she was making interesting.
2: Sanak is also a single mother.
3: She's taking care of, you know, a little girl. And she's, you know, completely independent. I think that... All women overall, (laughs) I think overall, we have to learn early on, you know, to take care of yourself and take care of your family.
0: The little girl was waiting at home and was increasingly in Sanak's thoughts as home drew nearer. Sanak was almost there, but the two dogs were the first to arrive. She trailed behind, within eyesight. Her daughter saw her and shouted, It's mother! It's mother!
2: What about the little girl? Her little girl in the book. I mean, is, do you recognize yourself in that?
1: Uh, yes, the girl in the book. It seems like mine. She wants to make sure she's she's okay. Even sometimes she's palatok. That means. down? Yes.
2: Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, she's very protective of her. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The little girl ran out so eagerly that she fell several times, even hitting her face on a rock. Finally, the two were together. The mother cuddled her little girl and offered the small berries she had picked for her.
2: Through the novel, we become immersed in her relationships with her community and
0: her constantly inquisitive daughter. Sanak lived with Alnaktuinak, her younger sister. All three had been outside for some time when they saw the men come back from fishing for Ikalukpik. Kumak asked, Mother, those men out there, what have they been doing? They've been fishing for Arctic char. Kumak went back to her game saying, I'll draw something. I'll draw little dog teams, mummy." I was born in the
4: 1950s when there were still only dog teams. No mechanized, uh, motorized vehicles. We were just dog teams. I remember that. For Minnie
2: Akparuk, this scene was instantly familiar.
4: When she was washing her clothes and she got burned, my mother did that.
0: Hmm. There was no washing machines. She poured the water she had been heating and began her wash. Ah ah! I scalded myself. Ah ah ah, da!
4: And when we had a day in our tent, we had a tent. My mother would repair clothing, darn holy socks. And yes, I would play around the tent and get on my parents'
0: nerves. (laughs) Mother, said Kumak, I'm hungry. Ababa. I hear you. Fetch my ulu. It's in the aki. You're going to eat some nikku. She cut off a chunk of nikku. There you are. Dip it in the misikhaq. Be careful not to spill any down the front of your shirt. I won't, replied Kumak. And sit down, added her mother. Just then, Ningiyukuluk walked in. "I, Ningiyukuluk, I explained Sanak.
4: Visiting, that was done also like that. So my name is Minnie I'm 71 years old. I was born in Great Whale River, Nunavik, Quebec.
2: Minnie was born right around the time Mityarjak Napalak began writing Sanak, and she lived through many of the changes Mityarjak describes. Now retired, she lives in Stratford, Ontario. She read Sanak for the first time this year. So now that you've read the book, what, what
4: is it that you think makes it special? Oh, um, wow. The more times I read it, the more I see in it. She was born in 1931. My mother was born in 1917, and I was born in 1952. So she's generation in the middle I've been reading a lot about Nunavik history or Northern history lately, and I realize now that my parents lived in an era where there was no contact with white people. Here, Sana, she talks about how they arrived and about how scared they were. It made me compare the three lives, my mother's, hers, and mine. Is there anything you found inspiring in the character of Sanak? I wished that I could have lived and seen what she saw and experienced. They were living by their own means, by their own wits, with no help. I want to be that confident in myself.
2: We can see Sanak's confidence, not just in how she fends for herself on the land, but also in how she fights for a life of her own choosing. Like when she rejects a marriage proposal.
0: You're really very old, Ak. You smell old. Get out and stay out. I don't want an old man's smell rubbing off on me. So he went off, completely disheartened. And Sanak made her feelings even clearer. The man I'll choose to be my husband isn't an old man. He's even a handsome man. He is Kalingu, the brother of my Katangut. Alongside the novel's scenes of love and humor,
2: there are also moments of mortal danger.
1: If we going to live in the north we have to know how to survive.
2: Hialuk flips to chapter 8. Yimialuk loses an eye.
1: Yimialuk I was really when I was a girl, Yimialuk that it was really touched me. Yimialuk igitwalin gutuk um he only had one eye.
0: Yi Miyaluk was preparing boiled meat in a large pot and filling it with whatever could go in. He erected a windbreak, using a large mangittaq of old kayak skins. When the meat morsels began to boil, he turned them over with a long metal pick. But as he was turning them over, he splashed himself in the face with the boiling hot water. He screamed, I've scalded myself something awful. My eye has been burned open. Ah, da, uh, da. That did make me scared. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so in this book, teaching the same time, we have to be aware. Oh, ye, is dwelling. Of, I was, I cannot forget forget her story.
0: Mother, I'm probably going to die. My eye was burned open when the boiled meat I was preparing was almost done. I've lost my lens E, there it is, a tiny little lens. Look, but what's to be done with it now? It may end up being eaten by the dogs.
4: I was surprised they described his lens. They didn't know physiology, and yet they <laughs> called it lens.
2: <laughs> Interesting. I didn't, even, I didn't even notice, really. It's about nursing. And nursing is something Mini Akparuk knows intimately. In the 1970s, after attending residential school in Churchill, Manitoba, she began studying nursing in Winnipeg.
4: But I wasn't very successful because I've never been in a city really before. And it was overwhelming. And all the things you could get into and all the ditches you could go in, I was in them. I quit there when I had six months to go. And it took me 20 years to heal from that.
2: She got her nursing degree in the early 90s and then became one of the first Inuk nurses in Nunavik. But in the novel, when Yemialik loses an eye, there are no nurses or doctors in the region yet.
0: They knew nothing about the existence of doctors or even big ships. When the women working on the kayak had finished their work, they got down to eating some of the boiled meat. Come and have some boiled meat, shouted Sanak to her companions. Have some. I will, answered Aqiyah but my son can no longer have any. He's burned himself very badly. Look at this. What, what is it about this chapter
4: that interested you? That he recovered with no care and that his mother Aherula knew that he was not to eat after the accident. That was amazing. That's a thing you treat with physical trauma, M.P.O.,
0: nothing by mouth. Night had fallen. They undressed for bed. Gimialuk soaked a cloth compress in water and placed it over his eye. Unable to fall asleep, he tossed and turned because of his burn. Everyone else went to sleep, leaving him alone with his pain.
4: It's amazing that they all ate after the accident and, and not pay attention to him, poor guy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. And that when they went to bed, everybody calmly fell asleep when he stayed awake in pain. If that was me, I would have kept everybody awake.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the lesson that we're to learn in this chapter, do you think?
4: Self-care, self-care. We run to people to help us. We think no secret, but we have our own ways and stuff that we could do for ourselves.
2: The plot thickens as another threat presents itself overnight.
0: While they slept at daybreak, a very large boat arrived. Alnatoynak was taken aback when she left the tent that morning. It was the first time she had ever seen such a thing. She shouted to her kinfolk, "Ilakka, wake up! What's this thing standing still in front of us?" The strange sight filled everyone with fear, and they made frenzied efforts to hide behind tent covers. Some, like Natuinak and Kumak, even began to cry. Finally, a large outboard full of kalunat headed to shore.
2: The kalunat, or white people known as big eyebrows,
0: have arrived. Once they were ashore, akiaqulak shouted to the big eyebrows, "Ai!" They failed to understand, not making the slightest response. They began to talk among themselves. The Inuit were astonished to hear them speak and greatly appreciated the many gifts that they handed out, even the empty tin cans. Sana left to go visiting. She had heard about the Qallunat and told everyone, People say the big eyebrows are really nice. Don't be afraid. It's even said that they have doctors. Mini Akbaruk
2: says that reading the novel helped her understand for the first time the monumental change her own parents lived through.
4: I didn't realize it was massive change. I thought this was like, I didn't realize that my parents were going through massive, irreversible change. Now looking back at it and reading about it also, I'm 71 to just now realizing what kind of really happened. Like the residential school experience, uh, I think we were all in shock, too shocked to speak about it. I don't know if it was a secret, but it wasn't openly talked about. So did you get an insight into your parents by reading Sanak? Yeah.
0: Yeah. The Qallunat went back to their big boat to get things ready for moving ashore. Once they were inside, a loud clanging and banging could be heard. The Inuit were filled with astonishment and cried out, listen to that, there's an awful racket going on. You said it, said Aqya but what can they be up to? Look over there, that little boat is full of stuff. The newcomers continued to unload. They picked things up and laid them on the shore while the others worked at building a large house.
4: You know how when you're down south, you need a permit to build? They just set up shop. How it really started was, I didn't realize it back then, but it was the Cold War. The Canadian Air Force and the American Air Force Called it the Dew Line, Distant Early Warning. The buildings went up like overnight, and school started in 1958. I went with my cousin. We were holding hands, excited by a new thing happening. And we tried to register, but my cousin wasn't old enough, and I got admitted. And we cried because we wouldn't be together. And I remember I didn't like the Air Force built a high fence dividing them between us.
2: On Ideas, you're listening to Sanok. It's the second episode in our special series exploring change and resilience in Nunavik. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed.
1: I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers.
2: What she was offering to do was to ski in
1: over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Sanak, the first novel written in Anuktitut, is many things. It's a novel and a repository of traditional knowledge. It began as language instruction for missionaries and became an act of language preservation. It's full of rich philosophical insights and practical instructions for how to survive.
0: Sanap, Almatuinap, Kumak, and Akutiaq, who was visiting, we're in the igloo with frost crystals falling and the temperature becoming ever colder for want of lamp oil. Kumak was penetrated through and through by the cold and was almost turning blue. In some spots, the packed snow had melted and turned into ice. So Sanak decided to go looking for some fresh snow to pack it with her feet. During a harsh winter in the igloo,
2: an elder named Ningyokluk comes to visit and tells a story of
0: survival. Ningyukuluk drank abundantly and began telling a story from the old times. A very long time ago, it said, there once was a man, an inlander, who was alone without even a dog, in a tiny snow house whose floor was covered with large trout he had caught with a hook and fishing line. During a long
2: winter night, he was awakened by the sound of galloping outside.
0: He knew full well that they were wolves and that there was no way for him to escape. Let it be, let them enter like humans, let them eat some trout. And then, so it is told, they entered. The she-wolf had taken human form and pushed inward the snow block that plugged the doorway.
2: As she munched on the trout, the female wolf confided in the Inuk about her difficulties with her mate, Every time she caught a caribou, he ate all the meat before her children had a chance to eat.
0: The Inuk began thinking once again. Given that the wolves haven't stopped eating, they'll probably use up my supply of trout during the night. The female that had taken human form and was a very good person again told her host, Tomorrow, you'll follow our tracks. When the Inuk awoke, at daybreak, the trout that had been eaten overnight were intact amazed and grateful the inuk followed the wolf's tracks he walked a very long time following the tracks until he saw before him two cadavers one of a wolf and one of a caribou lying side by side they were the gifts of the she-wolf the dead wolf was her old male gnashed to death by his own female she hated him because he left their offspring with so little to eat The man felt grateful for the caribou and for the wolf. I believe
3: that man was, he was going through a time of hunger and he awakens and there's these two dead animals. (laughs) I think people, you know, they made trouble the reality of having something like that happen where I would not. But there's always more to a story than what is obvious.
2: Author Norma Denning.
3: You know, the beautiful thing about elders is they will always give us more than what we realize. And when I've been in the presence of elders and been able to just spend time with them, you know, the stories that they tell us at the time, we may not understand why we're even being told that story. But somewhere along the line in your life, that story will return, and that that wisdom will return.
2: I, I love the idea of you thinking of this book as a as a an elder's bequeathment of wisdom or, or knowledge. What is it that immediately made you recognize it as such?
3: I, well, I'm Inuit, <laughs> 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 and so so that helps. Sure. But <laughs> I will say. I think she's a respectful writer. And perhaps sometimes, you know, initially people can look at the dialogue that she's writing and think, oh, it's so simple. But I think that was perhaps a way to draw in younger people to read. And then there's that shift when colonization gets going very heavily. We see the, a shift in the language.
2: There's also a shift in the way Sanak relates to elders like Ningiyukluk. Take this episode, where Sanak's husband, Kalingu, gets trapped in a blizzard.
0: At the camp where they had left their family, Sanak and her folks were worried. Ningiyukluk made Sanak even more anxious by saying, Sanak? ay, that's some blizzard. It's really no weather for being exposed to the elements far from home. I had a kunoyak some time ago. You'll have to take good care of your little boy because I dreamed of something broken. This is an omen that someone close would die. Those beliefs of yours just aren't true. I don't want to believe in them. Ningiyukuluk became angry because her views were being dismissed. As she left, she exclaimed, I'm leaving because no one believes me.
2: What is she setting in motion by dismissing the elder's knowledge?
3: I,
0: uh, I don't know. I
3: know this. I know that my mom would ask me every morning, did you dream? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and dreams were very, very important. And, you know, our understanding was especially a bad dream. If you had a bad dream, you had to speak it because then it would not happen. So that was the the thinking that was behind my every morning question Did you dream? <laughs> but what we I think what she's really pointing out is the influence of Christianity.
0: Sanak said, Ningiyukuluk, I'd like to give you some explanations. We've been told not to believe at all in such things. They're not really things to believe in. Ay.
3: When the administrators, non-Inuit administrators, were coming into the north, one of the, the things they very much <laughs> were heavy-handed about was the changing of Inuit names. and. Any we're told, like, no more, no more of that just one name. You know, you have to adopt and take up biblical Christian names. So to me, we're seeing that influence when, within the book, she is saying, you know, we've been told, we've been told.
2: Later in the novel, there's a chapter where danger does befall Sanak's son when he's playing
0: on the shore. He played with the little boat, chattering non There it goes! It's going over there! Wait a moment. We'll first go a bit out to sea. It's got a heavy load. He repeatedly waded into the water, and several times the water came up over the top of his boots. He had been told many times to be careful, yet he went ahead and climbed onto a rock with a very slippery surface. Suddenly, he slipped and fell into the water. He stayed there a long time, for he was all alone. He wailed and whimpered, but could not shout that he had fallen into the water. Sanak pulls him out in the nick of time, but he becomes seriously ill. Her son began to vomit water continually as Kalingu walked into the tent. Seized by fright, Sanak told him, My son fell into the water today. I'm frightened because he's still not fully recovered. Why are you so scared? asked Kalingu. Is it because you let him fall into the water? Or is it because you're afraid of my anger? The Ummiyah is about to arrive. His only chance of pulling through will probably be for him to leave. I'll go and see the Qaldunat at the trading post. I.
2: The people at the trading post say he needs to go south for treatment.
4: The way I used to teach the nurses was in the subject of residential school. The parents had to give up their children. That was the same with their bodies.
2: Mini Akparuk.
4: When white people came with their doctors and health care, they gave up their bodies to the white people and believed in their medicine, their pills. Because before that, it was shamans and religion, like praying over someone, faith, healing. I really think that the thing that happened was that we gave up our bodies to white people and expected miracles. Is going
2: south kind of part of that process, do you think?
4: Yes. And... It was a total body removal by sending them away. It might have been exciting to be transported by a a big tin can, fly Mm -hmm. away. Some people were dying to go. Hmm. There's drugs and alcohol ad lib down there. And some people never return. They live in the street. Uh, some people, it was a problem. Yes. They didn't want to leave home.
2: In the novel, Sanak is frantic with worry and desperate to prevent her son from being taken away. She gets into an argument
0: with her husband. He won't leave. I'll run away and take him with me. He can get better quite well just by staying here. If he goes, he will suffer all kinds of troubles. No way he is going. He isn't even old enough to think for himself. Kalingu, for his part, refused to waver, concerned as he was to see his son get better. Accept it, he said, or else his condition will get worse. He certainly won't leave. I absolutely cannot accept it. I insist. I'm going to run away with him. I'll get up very early, and while you're asleep, I'll leave and take him with me. He is going to go. Accept it. He won't go. He's my son, and I love him. If anything, you're the one who'll leave.
4: It was like if they took my child and lived with him on a plane without me at the age that that baby was, How would I feel? And what would I do?
2: So Sanak runs away with her son, and
0: Kalingu goes after her. When he caught up to Sanak, he questioned her. Where's my son? Is he dead? Sanak kept silent. Because she said nothing, he asked again, where is he? Is he dead? He began to hit up. He beat her with his fists while heaping insults on her.
4: In life now, family violence or gender-based violence, there's a lot of it, but it's hidden. It's like a big secret. It wasn't surprising that she wrote about it because it's so much part of life. Sanok is so badly
2: injured that, in the end, she's the one who has to go south for treatment.
0: Sanok continued to suffer and was unable to work. It will be necessary for you to go away, she was told. Your son seems all right now and no longer needs to leave, but you must go. The plane had arrived. Sanok prepared to leave and made arrangements for her children, who were heartbroken to see her go. It
4: reminds me of the time... I was leaving on a plane to go to Churchill Residential School, and my mother had very bad emphysema, and I saw her trying to run to the airport to see me off, but I was already on the airstrip, the plane taking off. I could make no noise. Just tears were flowing down my face.
2: When Hialak Napalak, Matyarjak's daughter, reads the sections where Sanak has to go south for treatment, she says it moves her deeply.
1: The last story, in the last story, Sana Ekne Aula This one, it was really touched me because Sana, she doesn't want her son to leave. When she have to leave, she left behind her children. When she go down to a hospital, that's the end. Uh, that's from her life story. Yes, because she was really loving her children. She always put first family before she's doing something, but she have to go, She have to leave so for you, the hospital. Mm-hmm. I think that's why she put that there. So you recognize your history in this book? Yes, I did.
2: Norma Dunning says this section of the novel where Sanak goes to the hospital where people start to leave the community for work and relationships break down, is one of the hardest for her to read.
3: Because of, uh, I think there's just so much sadness that is um, contained in all of that. And I always like to think, what if absolutely none of us were colonized? What would our lives be? Mm. Because no matter who we are in Canada, no matter what our ethnicity is, we have that common denominator of colonization. And so if that never occurred, how would we be? And, and I like to think about that. I like to think about this beautiful non-colonized world that, where people are just people.
2: In the final chapters, a remorseful Kalingu does his best to make amends with Sanak, but he also has to leave the community for work. Sanak and her family prepare to move into a house. While many of the characters convert to Catholicism, we also see the persistence of Inuit
0: beliefs existing side by side because she saw someone who wasn't human. Almaduak too almost got possessed by an. It's a good thing, Alma Tuinak, that you immediately confessed, said Sanak. You'll probably never see it again. It must be quite a shame that you confessed right away. If you hadn't, it would have appeared to you again and again, even briefly. It's said that that's how non-human beings appear, by taking on the appearance of the person one loves. Alma Tuinak felt well. She forbade herself to think about him because she feared encountering another non-human being. She behaved honorably, for she wanted to be baptized like her child and often went to pray.
2: By the end of the novel, what, what ways do you think Sanak has found to stay true to Inuit ways of knowing in the midst of all of the change that that community was going through?
3: It'll always be with her. It'll always be with all of us, but we have to go find it as well. So often, as Indigenous people, we get to hear, well, you're not traditional, you don't speak your language, you, you know, it goes, it's endless. And, uh, but it's inside of us, and nobody can take that away. But as Indigenous people, we have to seek it. We have to seek our language, we have to seek out our understandings, we have to spend time with our elders. And perhaps, you know, that's part of the message as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I wondered that, you know, in the decades after this book was published, you know, Inuit communities have faced a lot more change. So I'm wondering what lessons you think this book has to offer to Inuit readers who are looking at change or navigating change in the 21st century.
3: Well, you know, she's very, very, very adamant about keeping language. One of the things she would say, you know, you have to keep the old ways and you have to understand them. And, you know, if you eat land food, you won't get cold. And I think that's a a big part of her message. You know, you can have all of this other life going on around you, but always remember your traditional ways.
1: This book from my mother's history. So when I hear some other people, when they're talking about the story, very interesting because I learned from this book, the life, it's not just easy. We have to face it. And sometimes it's good, Sometimes we're going to be touched. I learned from my mother's book, we have to be ready. And I learned from this book, the family, they were really help each other. If they were not helping each other, we won't be here. Because the life in the North, it could be very dangerous. So... Everything it's not in water but we can learn from this book. It's a history book. Mm. It's a philosophy book. Yes. It's teaching you how to live. Yeah.
2: No wonder it took 20 years to write.
1: Uh it's all her life.
2: Minnie Akbaruk has loved books ever since she first learned to read as a young girl.
4: I didn't know a word of English or a word of reading anything. There were no books. It was an oral society. There were just starting to be books or newspapers that were thrown in the garbage that we could go through. The first The book I ever read was, uh, I picked this book up from the garbage. Someone had thrown it away. I finished reading it. It was about Thailand. From this book, I realized my brain could go anywhere from reading. And I could gain any knowledge by reading my brain could explode with things that I never saw before or heard of before or or learn things that I didn't know how to do. The more I read, the more I know that I don't know anything.
2: Spoken like a true, humble person. could, Could you have ever imagined as a young girl that, in your 70s, you'd be reading an Enoch novel in, Eng- in English in Stratford?
4: No, in a word. Every time there were any Indigenous mentioned on radio or TV, it spread like wildfire. Everybody talked about it. All the Inuit people said, Did you hear? Did you hear? And now, there's even a novel.
2: (laughs) You're laughing, smiling. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: It's a good thing. Yeah. Is there anything else from your notes or your thoughts that I didn't ask
4: you about that you want to mention? The one wish that we could go through each page and chapter and discuss it. I think we would be here till... 10 years. (laughs) I have opinions on each, every line. Is there one overarching opinion that you can share? There's so many. Like, someone else write a book, please. I would devour it like a meal. (laughs) Please keep going. Please keep writing Please keep exposing the Inuit experience.
2: In 2021, seven decades after Mityarjak Napalik began writing Sanak, Norma Dunning became the first Inuk woman to win the Governor General's Literary Award for
3: Fiction. How has this novel influenced your own writing? I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's being free, a sense of freedom, that it's okay to publish, that it's okay to put things out in the world. It's okay when people come after you and tell you you're wrong. <laughs> There's this sense of, um, you know, she did it for all of us. She, she opened up that pathway. I think she, she gave us all a good start. Yeah. You also write that, that the novel was a
2: gift to both the Inuit world and to Canada, and that the world is a better place for it. Yes. In your words, can you say how it makes the world a better place, with Sanak in it?
3: I think people are experiencing through her writing, she is allowing an Inuit experience for everybody. So to me, you know, she's introduced us to the entire world with with all the beauty that she wrote in this book it is a gift you know it is a, it is a beautiful gift and i'm glad that she wrote it that she gave it to all of us for how many more generations
2: on ideas you're listening to sanak this episode was produced by Pauline Holdsworth. Special thanks to Hialik Nepalik, Minnie Akparuk, Norma Dunning, and to the University of Manitoba Press. Throughout this episode, you've heard excerpts from the audiobook of Sunak, read by Tiffany Eilich. English translation by Peter Frost. At CBC, thanks to Valérie Landry and the CBC Library Partnership Programme, Michael Dick, Robert Doane, Salu Ava, Duncan Miku, and Eilish Quinn. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast. If you like the episode you just heard, check out our podcast fee's vast archive, where you can find more than three hundred of our past episodes. When Mityarjuk Napalak wrote *Sanak*, it was just the beginning. Over the course of her extraordinary life, she wrote more than twenty books.
3: She was also a sculptor. She was like the all-around artist. And, <laughs> and a teacher. Yes. That's coming up in the
2: next installment of our special series on change and resilience in Nunavik. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nicola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas... And I'm Nala Ayad.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca Podcasts.